Good morning. I am Hussain Haqqani. I'm director uh, of, for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to uh, have with me uh, Ms. Asma Jahangir, a human rights icon from Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, of course, continues to face uh, political instability, economic challenges, rising radicalization, uh, enormous human rights challenges, and the ever-present threat of terrorism and regional conflict. Uh, Pakistanis, uh, of which I am one, often feel that uh, the world sees Pakistan's glass only as half empty. Uh, critics, of which I am also one, say that maybe it is half empty and emphasizing the half full part is probably a way of uh, excusing yourself from seeing the half empty part. Uh, some of these problems have been there for decades and so therefore unless we confront them, uh, we will not be able to change things in Pakistan. And that debate continues among Pakistanis who are, you know, I'm now, I'm not going to tell my age, uh, 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 but I, I've been around long enough to have heard the same argument over and over again. Um, it's interesting that the Human Rights uh, Report of the Department of State for 2015 uh, cited certain problems in Pakistan, especially on the human rights front. And these were extrajudicial and targeted killings, enforced disappearances, torture, lack of rule of law, including lack of due process, poor implementation and enforcement of laws, and frequent mob violence and vigilante justice, gender inequality, and sectarian violence. Uh, we have with us today, who is probably better qualified than anyone else in this room to talk about these issues and any other issue connected to Pakistan. Uh, Asma Jahangir uh, is Pakistan's most prominent human rights activist. She co-founded and chaired the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. Uh, she faced imprisonment in 1983 and on some other occasions as well for confronting the uh, brutal Islamist military regime of General Ziaul Haq, which by the way now it is fashionable to dump all of Pakistan's uh, issues on. It's, it's fashionable to say it all started with Ziaul Haq. Uh, and uh, here I would like to make a plug for my book, Pakistan Between Mosque and Military, which proves that it didn't begin with him, and it's not likely to end with him either. It's something that is endemic, and it's structural, and we need to deal with it. Asma also served as the UN Special uh, Rapporteur on uh, Extrajudicial Executions from 1998 to 2004, uh, as UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion and Belief from 2004 to 2010, which is the year that she became the first woman to become president of the Supreme Court Bar Association of Pakistan. She's the recipient of several awards, including the Hilal e Imtiaz, uh, uh, which is Pakistan's second highest civilian award, uh, the Right to Livelihood uh, Award, Freedom Award in 2010, the UNESCO Bilbao Prize for the Promotion of a Culture of Human Rights, the Raymond Magsaysay Award, and the Martin Ennals Award for Human Rights Defenders in 1995. In 2014, the French government awarded her with the Officer of the League of Honor. Uh, Asma's books include Divine Sanction, which is a discussion of Pakistan's Hudud Ordinance, and another book called, uh, titled Children of a Lesser God, Child Prisoners of Pakistan. 
And I have the privilege not only to present Asma Jahangir here to this audience, but also to acknowledge her contribution to my own uh, life uh, as my lawyer who won freedom for me at a time when the powers that be in Pakistan would have preferred that I stay on in Pakistan in a state of limbo, not being charged with any crime, but also not a completely free citizen. And she fought for that. And I'm grateful to you, Asma, for that. So let's begin by a uh, sort of overview. Where do things stand? We had Aisha Jalal come here not long ago, uh, Professor Aisha Jalal. And she said, Pakistan should be seen through the prism of its people, it's 200 million people, their creativity, um, the artists who are painting very nice paintings these days, the musicians who are creating great music, um, and uh, authors who are writing good fiction, poets who are writing good poetry. And I was in discussion with her, and I said, that's true, but the world normally doesn't look at countries that way. For example, I'm sure there were artists painting good pictures in uh, Italy under Mussolini or uh, during the Soviet era in the Soviet Union. And so this desire that, you know, our musicians should be the ones who should be appreciated, our human rights violators should be excused for that, is an erroneous approach. We as Pakistanis need to confront certain demons. What demons are being confronted? What are not? Let's start. Well, thank you, first of all. Thank you very much for inviting me here and speaking to all of you. Uh, when I told my husband that I may be dropping in for a day in Washington because Hussain Akani has invited me to give a lecture, he sort of looked at me and he said, if people still want to hear you, why not? So <laughs> here I am. I would agree with Aisha Jalal that there is a positive change in Pakistan too. But that positive change is not necessarily because people are painting well. And if I look at Pakistan from the eyes of the teeming millions there, it's a life of helplessness rather than a life full of cultural activity. But what is positive about Pakistan is that there is a certain energy amongst people. There's a certain empowerment that people have acquired. It hasn't been given to them, but it has, they have acquired it. That is why I brought some photographs to share with you. And one of my most favorite photographs is the photograph of women in Banu, which is in Fata area, where women are wearing shuttlecock, burqa, a veil, and asking for their right to vote. And I think that tells the story of Pakistan, that they cannot dare take off their veil, but they have the aspiration to be part of a society. We have tons of problems in Pakistan, but some are more endemic than others. When we were kids, we were told that some people were uh, kind of uh, people who love to oppose governments. And so there was a story about one gentleman who was always opposing all governments, who went to sea and got drowned. And then he saved himself, went on shore, and said to somebody, where am I? And they said, there you are in so-and-so place. Is there a government here? He said, yes. And he said, well, I'll oppose one then. But in Pakistan, 
The point is that you ask constantly, which government? Who is actually in power? Though we have a civilian government which is elected, but the actual power and the actual decisions are still made by the military. The difference that has happened over the years is that now nobody is saying that you want to have a military rule because it's better for the country. Even the military itself is not saying that. But what they are saying is that we, are, we have changed. And that's the new mantra. We have changed. When I look at how they have changed, the only change that I can see is they're still writing the script, but they don't know what the drop scene is going to be. That is the change. Because, and, and the other, other thing is that they have realized that there are serious governance problems in Pakistan for anybody. For the military to come in and solve those problems is not possible. These problems are known to politicians. These problems are known to people. It's not rocket science, but they cannot be fixed. Because our military is both a blessing in Pakistan and also very worrying. You cannot go forward because their interests now clash with the interest of the teeming millions that we talk about. And you cannot not commend them for keeping the country together, which they have done, and very recently for the war on terror, which they are fighting, though I have my own differences with the manner in which it has been fought, which is fought without accountability. And the laws that have been passed in Pakistan uh, never before have we had laws which were as draconian as they are now today. Military courts are back. Uh, people are getting executed on confessions. Uh, there are people who are being picked up. Space for civil society has shrunk, not only in organizations of civil society, but also in colleges and schools. The military will go in and ask whether what a child is doing, what they put up on their Facebook. So it is what we used to call a police state. It is today a military state, despite an elected civilian government. What are the problems, Hussein Haqqani, you ask me, and what are the governance problems there? Anybody will tell you that everybody knows that we have to fix FATA. Everybody will tell you that FATA has to either become a part of the province of Pakhtunkhwa or made an independent province. That the jurisdiction of the courts have to be extended to FATA, but nobody can do it because FATA is ruled exclusively by our military. Gilgit and Baltistan. Now, this is a strange example of Gilgit and Baltistan because we are seeing insurgency, the so-called insurgency, being brewed there. And I, this is the first time that I have come across an insurgency that says that we want to be a part of Pakistan. What people are asking there is not that we want to secede, but please make us a part of this country. We want to have a right of vote. We want to be in the parliament. 
And for saying that, we are arresting activists in Gilgit and Baltistan. Now, Gilgit and Baltistan cannot be settled unless India-Pakistan relationships are not settled. And India-Pakistan relationship will never be settled because our military sees India not only as an enemy, which it may well be, but a country which they wish to destroy, which they do not wish to hear about. And any kind of relationship between India and Pakistan is an anathema for the military. They do not want reconciliation between Baloch nationalists and the government in Islamabad. They are willing to sit with the Taliban who killed our children, but they're not willing to sit with Baloch nationalists. Not, I'm not talking about Baloch terrorists, but I'm talking about Baloch nationalists. Similarly, they are against, or they work against the interest of regional harmony. We have Iran that is complaining about Pakistan. We have Afghanistan. We have India. And yet, we pretend as though we are the greatest martyr. This is what I have never understood about my own country, is that we are being wronged. The whole world is against us. Why is the world against you? Doesn't the world have other things and better things to do? But anyway, we have problems like the judiciary, which we'll come to later, and an unrealistic constitution. Now, if I tell someone, for example, my daughter is a journalist, and I told her that freedom of expression is restricted, and in every country there is restriction, but in our country, freedom of expression is also restricted, saying that you cannot say anything against friendly countries. And indeed, when some newspaper wrote against bird hunting of the Arab uh, chiefs, that newspaper was shut down because they had said something against friendly countries. Now, India has the same, but their, their courts have ruled that, no, this is obsolete and you can, of course, criticize anyone. And what they said was, there's no list of what is friendly and what is not friendly country. And I'm sure we cannot give a list either, because I don't know whether the US is friendly or not friendly. I hope nowadays it's not it's, friendly. It's, 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 <laughs> it's sufficiently criticized, though. So yeah, That was a good overview, uh, Asma. Now, you, you touched upon the military's intrusiveness into civilian aspects of life. Um, and many of us have criticized it and documented it. But here's my question. Uh, to what extent is, is it a function of the military not being willing to give up powers that have accumulated as an institution since 1958 gradually? And to what extent is it actually a function of the civilians not being able to exercise power effectively, partly because they lose legitimacy under allegations of corruption or mismanagement, and partly because they simply lack the experience that is needed uh, to provide governance. The civil service is far weaker than it used to be. Uh, um, and uh, you and I were discussing how civil servants of another era were far more willing to assert themselves and say what is or is not legal uh, than they are now. So politicians lacking knowledge, uh, the political class not uh, far too willing to concede space, for example, in Sindh. 
Karachi has become a major place for enforced disappearances. The paramilitary rangers are trying to create an alternative political party to the political party that the people of Karachi have repeatedly voted for, the MQM. And their leader, who lives in London, has been silenced through a court order that he can't, no Pakistani television uh, 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 program or show can invite or allow uh, the leader of the MQM to be shown on television. The media can't report his name or anything he says. Um, and, he, and, and that has happened with civilian blessing. The government, actually the civilian government, uh, through an ordinance, allowed that to happen. The civilians allowed military courts to be created to try civilians. Uh, so is it just, I mean, are we wrong in complaining about the military's intrusiveness without actually also criticizing our civilian political leadership for some of their decisions and certainly their lack of governance focus? I don't think that it's easy to defend civilian leadership at all. And I would be the last to defend them. But it is not about the civilian leadership. It's about the way things have run a course. If I look at the assembly or the parliament of Pakistan's parliament of today, you go person by person, at least 80% of them were made politicians via the ISI. So the, these are not politicians who came through some movement or some student union or uh, some kind of a political process. These were what I say overnight politicians. So I, I think that for overnight politicians, if you may allow me to say so, they haven't done so badly. Uh, because they have at least been able to challenge oppression when it came to them. And when you look at the manner in which the military has been able to use terrorism to its advantage. I think the, the way and the manner in which the politician fell for it, as they do everywhere else, even in mature democracies, if I may say so. Uh, I was quite shocked because it wasn't really people who were not lawyers, they were lawyers who had worked for civil liberties for many years, who actually sat and voted for a law, which, is, which we call POPA, where you can be arrested and kept arrested for 90 days, where you can have detention centers which you don't, don't need to disclose, uh, where you can be put under preventive detention, which is against the Constitution, but this law has constitutional protection. They also... Uh, voted for a constitutional amendment in setting up military courts. The good thing is that like everybody finds out after they wake up from this jargon and mantra of terrorism can only be confronted through oppressive means, is that these things have not worked. 
military courts have simply not worked. The ordinary courts that were under heavy criticism have in fact done better, both in terms of punishing and in terms of being able to acquit people who were innocent than the military courts, because they're, it's, it's just stereotype. Everybody confesses, says the same thing, you read one file, it's one to all. And finally, they were obviously stay orders by the court. So these people were not, they're sitting there and they will have to be tried again. So what has happened? Nothing. Now, where I do think that our leadership, civilian leadership, is to be blamed is that the military has very effectively been able to use one against the other. They have never sat down together and said, look, these are our red lines. We will not go beyond these red lines. If they want to get rid of Sharif, they will have a dharna outside. And everybody knows where that dharna came from. Suddenly, Kadri turns up. I mean, you know, this, this is full-blown drama that was created. Now they want to get rid of Nawaz. For a long time, they want to get rid of him. And God sent Panama came in. And without thinking, everybody wants his head till everybody else's name starts coming out, that he, they have also been Panama. And the logic of it, I am quite surprised. What is the logic? Well, this is illegal money that Nawaz Sharif has made. Fine, but didn't you know that he made this money for many years? Yeah, but at least that illegal money was in Pakistan. So you can make illegal money as long as it is parked in Pakistan. But once you park it outside, you're committing a crime. Then another leader comes up and says, yes, yes, I did have an offshore company, but I was not actually crooking the government of Pakistan. I was paying my taxes in Pakistan. What I was crooking was the government of Britain. So good. As long as you crook another country, you're fine. You're not a crook. Now, this kind of a logic uh, escapes me. And there is a sitting judge who has been director of a company in Panama, and neither the press has talked about it, nor any political party, nor the parliament. Nor Dr. A.Q. Khan and his family members. Nobody uh, has I talked mean, about anybody else. So I think, and the politicization of corruption leads to more corruption, in my view. Nothing has been done which makes me sad in the parliament where there is a genuine desire for reform, either by the government or the opposition. And it is my view that having a good government and good governance is key, but it can never be achieved without a responsible opposition. Opposition is as important in a democracy as government itself. And we somehow, this time around, we do not seem to have a constructive opposition that is bringing out the issues of torture, which is endemic in Pakistan, people who have disappeared. I mean, they will bring it up if they want to embarrass the government. They are so scared of the military that they will not bring up issues that will annoy the military. There is no law 
under which they have said, okay, let's now sit down and make sure that illegal money will be made accountable. Nothing of that sort is happening, and therefore I agree with you that they have a lot to answer for. But that does not give the military an excuse to intervene. Of course. Because if the politicians are bad, the military rulers have been worse. And the answer to a bad politician is a good politician, not a bad military dictator. So that, that I, think, I think most of us can agree on because there, we haven't found a good military dictator yet anywhere in the world. Um, so, okay. Um, now, we've talked about an overbearing military, a, the deep state, which, as you said, when you were talking about some of some people may have, those who are familiar with Pakistan and its politics probably understood the reference immediately, but those who don't, let me explain it. The dharna was this virtual siege of parliament by a large crowd that uh, cricketer turned politician uh, Imran Khan led, demanding Prime Minister Sharif's resignation soon after an election. And, and, and I think what uh, Asma was alluding to was the pro possibility that, this was, that, that his strings were actually being pulled by Pakistan's deep state, whose head at that time was a, uh, a, a general who had made it quite clear to people that he really wanted Prime Minister Sharif to go. So, so, so there's manipulated politics. And then, of course, there is uh, weaknesses in opposition. Now, you have fought for Pakistan's judiciary, but you have also fought the Pakistani judiciary uh, over its uh, of, uh, lack of focus on certain things. And arbitrary detention, lengthy pretrial detention, people have cases filed against them, no trial and no bail, and so they're in prison for like uh, several years without being convicted of a crime. Um, total lack of judicial independence in lower courts, uh, government infringement on citizens' pri uh, pri pri privacy rights, a weak criminal justice system, no, no ability to carry prosecutions forward, uh, basically uh, police slash military state as you talk about. And the judiciary, for example, under the previous Chief Justice, uh, Mr. Iftikhar Chaudhary, totally acting on populist sentiment, playing to the gallery uh, at the highest level while doing nothing to provide justice uh, below. Highest number of, third highest number of executions in the world. 324 people executed in Pakistan last year. Uh, probably only uh, high holidays were exempted, otherwise it would have been one execution per day. Uh, many of the uh, executions uh, being conducted uh, on the pretext that this is part of our effort to, uh, to, to deal with terrorism. That's how the, um, the uh, s uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the, the embargo on, on uh, 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 executions was lifted. But major terrorists not being executed, only ordinary people. So where does the judiciary stand right now? And what is the sign of hope? And what are the reasons for concern? Well, uh, I have often thought about the problems in Pakistan and then held my head and said, where do we start? And this is my opinion that unless and until you don't have an independent judiciary, we will not get anywhere. Because when you talk of accountability, if it had been an independent judiciary, we would not have the levels of corruption that we have now. This illegal money which was parked in Pakistan would have got detected before it left Pakistan and went to Panama. Plus, 
An independent judiciary will ensure that people get their rights. For me, what is extremely important is that the ordinary Pakistani can go to sleep without fear. But there is a pervasive fear today in Pakistan. Pervasive fear of violence, pervasive fear of the fact that if you are falsely arrested, you can never escape torture. You will never get justice. And that sense of insecurity in ordinary person, that I will never get justice, is the worst thing that you can imagine. Living here, you cannot even conceive of it. I am a lawyer. I've been there since working since 1980. And 99% of my clients are very vulnerable sections of society, both economically, religious minorities, women, ethnic minorities. And some of them are very powerful people, but when they fall into problems, they will come to me not because I'm the best lawyer, because I will understand what has happened, because I'm a human rights lawyer. And I feel the pain. I have seen men crying with tears. Why? Because they are poor. And they know because they are poor, they will never get justice. That, for me, is the most important thing. I am not concerned who is the prime minister of that country. I am concerned that the systems of that country should be such that people will at least expect to get treatment which is equal and respect and dignity. I'm not saying that necessarily all democracies give that, but that's a beginning. That's a beginning, and I don't think that democracies can stand without human rights. Human rights is integral to democracy. But when I look at my own judiciary, there are moments that I can be very proud of them. Because there are some cases or some issues that the judiciary has taken up when the parliament has really been very careless about it. To give you an example, the law of blasphemy. The way the parliament has worded that law, that if you say anything derogatory, directly or indirectly, through innuendos or otherwise, or sign against the name of the Holy Prophet, you will get mandatory death penalty. To this day, death penalty has not been confirmed till the Supreme Court for anyone. And somehow the judiciary has found a way of protecting those that eventually do go into court. Many people die, are killed before they go to court. But I think that it's a huge burden on our judiciary. And a very recent judgment and I salute the judge. I don't agree with all his judgments. I've never agreed with many of his judgments. But where, despite mob violence and mob pressure, he actually upheld the conviction of the man who confessed that he had killed the governor, I think was a brave thing to do. Then, while the parliament said, yes, we need military courts, I went to court, to the Supreme Court, 
and the executions were stayed. I was quite surprised that that had happened. But if you say to me, well, what about the judiciary as an institution? I'm afraid it is neither independent, nor does it have integrity, and nor does it have capacity. There are a few judges that I will always have great regard for. And why I say that is that you were talking about this gagging order of Altaf Hussain. I am neither an MQM fan and least of all Mr. Altaf Hussain's fan or admirer. But when they came to me and said, this is the order of the court, will you take our case? And I said to Mr. Farooq Sattar, I said, Mr. Farooq Sattar, I would not, I, I'm not saying I may not have. I said I would have never taken a case for MQM. But this kind of an order is scandalous. You know what it says, that even the photograph of the leader of the MQM cannot be shown. Even the photograph. And I said to the judge that if tomorrow, God forbid, it never happens, and I, this is not how I meant it, but I said, if Mr. Altaf Hussain passes away, actually that order is such that there can be no news saying that he has passed away. And the gagging order has been there for the last eight months. And the judge refuses to rule on it. He just won't rule one way or the other. Finally, I just said, these are my written arguments. Keep them. Rule when you wish to. Because during the process, of course, there have been heated words that we exchanged, the judge and myself. And so I thought it was getting very ugly now, so it's best to leave that there. When, when I get, and I, I think that when I get angry with judges, it's not because I'm losing a case. We lose a case every day. Lawyers always lose a case or win a case. And what we say in our bar room is, the day we'll win a case, we don't go and have cherry and pancakes, and the day we lose it, we don't go to sleep crying. For us, it's the same thing. We do it all the time. But where anger comes into it is when you know that the judge is doing this because of loss of integrity. And it was very clear to me that the lawyers who had filed that case, I know where they came from, uh, what is their background, and uh, one is regularly paid by MI, and it's common knowledge, and he doesn't deny it also. MI is military intelligence. Yes. And how can that judge give that order uh, without even hearing the other side? So we know what is at play here. What is at play is somehow to get the leadership of every political party, and this has been going on forever and ever, minus one formula by the army. They hate politicians, first of all. And so they think that every politician is dirty, corrupt, rude, and useless. And a foreign agent. And a foreign agent. That all civilians are. They are the ones that are keeping the country together, holding it up like that, and the saviors of this country not realizing that the deep divisions within the country the tensions within the country, the problems that have manifested themselves today are their doing, are their doing, not the doing of any civilian. But they are the saviors. 
We are foreigners living in that country. We don't care about that country. They are the only ones who care. That is why they kill. That is why they torture. That is why they pick up people and disappear them. All in the name of national interest. And I think it must stop. It has to stop. There, the judiciary is the only institution which the feel is an obstacle or, or gives them a hard time sometimes. Because legitimacy matters to them? Well, legitimacy, because lawyers will not give up. Lawyers will go to court. And a judge, when he's sitting there in open court, when there's a shut and closed case, I mean, it's very difficult for a judge to rule otherwise. I mean, for this gagging case, for example, in the courtroom, lawyers shouted, shame, shame, to the judges. And they didn't know they had to run to their chambers because, after all, they know what is happening there. So I'm not saying it's happening in all the cases, but selectively, they do come forward, the judiciary. Otherwise, you have your Mr. Ifzakhar Chaudhary who was there. And if I may say so, uh, that was judicial dictatorship during that time. And I think judicial dictatorship is far worse than a civilian dictatorship of a politician. Okay. Because they can write what they want and they can tell you, go to hell. That's it. I mean, they, I can give you examples and examples of some most ridiculous judgments by the Supreme Court. Uh, very personalized. For example, there's a woman politician who has been disqualified from contesting elections for life on the premise that the chief justice thinks that the photograph on her degree of BA does not look like her. Now that photograph went to forensic and the forensic said yes, that was her. But then the chief justice's eyes cannot lie. Because if the chief justice says it doesn't look like her, then it doesn't look like her. And I said to them, okay, if it is not her, after all, this photograph must belong to some person. Tell the intelligence to produce that person. Says we don't need to, we can see. And by the way, the chief justice is squint. Everybody knows that. And he says that I can see that it doesn't match her face. And this woman is disqualified and every judge knows that it's malice. Every judge knows that. But nobody is willing to overturn it. Same, I mean, if you look at Mr. Hussain Afghani's case itself, I mean, I have never seen such charade in my life. Such charade. To the extent that judges who were sitting, who were chief justices of the provinces, who were sitting on this uh, commission, noted the evidence incorrectly. And so when I filed a, a petition saying, an application saying, can you give me the actual tape so that I can look at it and compare it with the transcription? That tape has never been given to me. Because, it, because that's obvious that the chief justice of a particular province was cheating, was absolutely cheating. And other than that, there's callousness, total callousness. 
you uphold death penalty without thinking twice about it. And, the, and what we are told as lawyers, but you know, he must have done something. Now, come on, you, you don't hang a person because they must have done something. I mean, when you talk about the lower judiciary or the subordinate judiciary, I have far more respect for them than I do have for our so-called superior judiciary. Because we have such cartoons there that it is unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, talking about one institution which you pointed out has issues of integrity, of, of, of competence, of uh, capacity, uh, moving to another institution that is uh, often cited as a success story for Pakistan uh, currently, and that is the media. Mm -hmm. uh, a very free and a very diverse media. And judging by uh, sort of, you know, WhatsApp groups and social media discussions, it seems that Pakistanis only do one thing, which is uh, early afternoon onwards, they just watch television talk shows on current affairs on I don't know how many channels. Mm -hmm. um, so, but at the same time, serious issues with the media, both in terms of accuracy, in terms of, uh, of, of, of competence and capability. 57 journalists have been killed in Pakistan since 1992, the sixth largest number. So, you know, Iraq, Syria, Philippines, which has a war in the south at least, if not in the main country, Algeria and Somalia, all of them war-torn countries. And Pakistan is at least not in the middle of a civil war and so many journalists dying. How do you rate Pakistan's media at the present moment? I don't want to rate media. Okay. Because I think that media is extremely important. And when I am told that this is what the media is doing, I agree. There are several anchors that you can tell have their own perspective. They are not speaking themselves. Somebody is asking them to speak on their behalf. Absolutely correct. But I would rather have media than have no media. Probably the same goes for the judiciary. It's much better to have the judiciary, even with its flaws and weaknesses, than not have it, as you point out. I agree with you, and I agree with the politicians as well, because I cannot believe that any country can run without political parties. Good point. Afghanistan is a prime example where, when they were trying to rebuild Afghanistan, and Mr. Bahimi was there, I was also there for my UN work, and I said, Mr. Brahimi, how can you run a country with NGOs? What about political parties? Say, oh, we don't want to have political parties. Well, you don't want to have political parties, then you will never have a melting pot. And in our countries, we are very diverse ethnically. Also. Therefore, political parties are e extremely important. NGOs can never have the kind of outreach that a political party has, can never send the kind of message that a political party can. So I think that you're right, that despite my differences with the media, despite my differences with political leadership and the judges, I would rather have them than have military courts. I've been a military court under trial, so I know how military courts work. But that doesn't mean that we should not improve it. That doesn't mean that we don't need reforms in the media. That doesn't mean we don't need reforms in the judiciary. And there are reforms on the table particularly about the judiciary, because we have a very vibrant bar association. You know that. The bar associations of Pakistan are vibrant. 
they have time and again said these are the reforms we should have not only in the judiciary but also in the bar associations because we are a statutory body but is anybody listening no because the mood is not towards reform the mood is how do we survive and with every civilian government it is how do i survive i mean you know when your case was going on there were bets that the government is going so even lot people, here a lot of people lost money on that the bookies won <laughs> the bookies won there uh, the bookies won big time there was in fact on the day i was leaving the country there were bets on whether i get on that plane and then there was some people who were actually taking bets on whether that plane actually leaves the country so the bookies lost big time i didn't get a cut on that unfortunately <laughs> but uh, i just want to say one thing that you know we've had censorship for many years in our country and our people in pakistan are quite used to having this little system inside their head where they can actually process the news process the news it's not just that we watch television pakistan is a very political country if you go there you will go to the roadside cafe people will be discussing politics if you ask them who is your chief minister they will not only tell you the name of the chief minister but how many children the chief minister has how many wives he has and all his habits and several adjectives about him as well yes of course good um so so my final question to you is terrorism and the fight against terrorism and jihadism we have thousands of people dead in pakistan including security forces security forces conducting operations arbeas which is very important because it is directed at terrorists it may not be directed at all terrorists but it is directed at terrorists uh peshawar uh, army public school attack lahore uh, uh, playground attack things like that public a little bit more aware yet we hear that lashkar-e-taiba and its jamaat ud-dawa is actually running parallel sharia courts in lahore in lahore not in some small village or town but in lahore what is the state of play on pakistan's struggle against and with terrorism and uh, what are again the positives as well as the negatives that's a very difficult question to answer because there is no transparency in that war but from what we can see is that terrorism certainly has gone down okay and violence has gone down uh what we also know is that the army is sincere and does want to eliminate you know um places where terrorism is being supported however what is not clear is whether the good or the bad taliban's theory has been abandoned or not i find it difficult to believe that it has been abandoned not only in terms of the war against terror but when you talked about capital punishment now does anybody remember daniel pearl of course and the person who murdered daniel pearl would you call him terrorist or not a terrorist he has not been executed so far but other people have been for heinous crimes no doubt but not terrorists so i have a question mark there and i think that we are 
we, Arami wants to hear, I will say it again and again. And I'm sure there will be a couple people here who may want to listen to this as well. That we are very grateful that our army has done what it has done against terrorism. But surely we have paid the army for so many years to do this. It is not Mr. Hussain Haqqani and myself who have to pick up the arms and go and fight terrorists. It is precisely them who has to do it. So we can thank them, but at the same time remind them that that is their responsibility and not the responsibility of teachers and dentists and lawyers. How, and the second thing, what worries me is, and that is for their sake, that this can become counterproductive if the human rights violations continue to occur. We know that in conflict, there's a huge temptation uh, to bypass due process, to bypass the fact that you want to arrest people and then go through the rigors of trial and things. But collective punishment by the military has been known to be given in many parts of Fatah. And as I said earlier, it, it really upsets me. Torture is there. And I do not condone torture even for a terrorist. I am yet not a US citizen who is debating whether torture is legitimate or not. For me, there can be no tolerance. There has to be zero tolerance for torture. And I was seeing a documentary day before yesterday, and I wonder if any of you have seen it, called Reluctant Spy, where there is an ex-CIA, FBI person and a woman attorney who actually bring out the issue that torture, can, uh, that information that was brought, that was, that, was, that was given through torture actually was incorrect, number one. And number two, they make that very wonderful distinction between espionage and whistleblowers. And I really like that documentary. I'm going to get that book and read it and perhaps also um, publicize it in Pakistan because anyone who believes that through torture you will get information, you're not doing your work properly. Then the intelligence agencies are not doing their work properly. And secondly, I feel that disappearances not only in Pakhtunkhwa and Balochistan, they have started taking place in Sindh as well. That has to end. Target killing in Karachi. Well, the good news is that for the first time, there was an inquiry of torture uh, by rangers and an inquiry ordered by the army chief. And I think that, that that's a positive sign. The positive sign the is... The uh, person who was, or who was killed, killed only torture. a week ago or something. A week ago. But I think that in every person who dies in custody, there has to be an inquiry. Right. For example, in Sawat, there are these internment centers. And you won't believe it, that over 120 people died of heart attack. So I was in court when this was being told to me. I said, Must look. Must have something in the diet. No, I said, is it infectious heart attack that you have so many people dying of heart attack, for God's sake? 
so I think that these, these are issues that we have to explain. But we do get the same answer that I got when I was a UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial killing from every country. So Pakistan is not new in, unique in that. The answer is, but you see, we are fighting ter terrorism. We, have, we are in a conflict. What do you expect us to do? These people are barbaric. These people are brutal. Yes, they are barbaric and brutal. That's why we call them terrorists. But you are our national army and our pride. We don't want to call you terrorists and murderers. So you should not be doing that. And this is precisely what I said to people when I went to Mexico, when I went to Democratic Republic of Congo, or wherever. But this is a patent answer that is always given. Well, I had planned to go up to 11.15 with our presentation and our discussion and then open it up to question and answer. So that time has arrived. That basically means that the question of religious freedom that I wanted to raise will not now have to be raised by someone in the audience. Uh, so please help me. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's the remaining question. It has been a wonderful discussion. Now the discussion is open uh, to uh, all of you. Please raise your hands when I call upon you. Uh, give a short, very short introduction of yourselves and ask a question. And question, as we all know, is something that ends with a question mark. Mm -hmm. There is a, lo a clear, if you are unclear about it, Google right now. Uh, the, the, uh, the dictionary makes a clear distinction between a speech, uh, a comment, and a question. So let's start right here. Mike, Mike, Mike. Uh, Tom Timberg, consultant. I would also love to hear the answer about religious freedom, but my question has to do with the role of the legal profession, both, if you will, as a, a general concept and the, as an organized uh, interest group, and how that has uh, affected uh, the situation in Pakistan. Thank you. I am not going to say that the legal profession is perfect. It isn't. Uh, there are several things that are very worrying and trends that are very worrying about the legal profession. For example, they have started using violence against judges of the lower courts, against the police. And this has been taken note of by the leadership in the legal profession and the judges. Uh, there are judge-lawyer partnerships that have always been there and continue to be there, uh, which, of course, is horrible. But the good news is that first we didn't talk about it. We now do talk about it. We do address it. Uh, the legal profession was, for many years, dominated by one group, now, fortunately, we have two. The other one headed by me. And we won elections for the last seven years. But it's not because we are the greatest group. I worry many times, even in our own group, how some habits are destroying uh, the profession as such. There is hardly any disciplinary action taken for lawyers. But nevertheless, regardless of which group people belong to, they are the only soft accountability for judges. 
Judges are not afraid of anyone, not of litigants, not of the public, not of the government. If they are afraid of anyone, it is the legal profession itself. And the legal profession, regardless of the grouping and the leadership of every legal, uh, bar association and bar council, will not allow the judges to rubber stamp a military coup at all. That is why there is a lot of pressure in the legal in the legal community itself, and there people are being bought and being told that no, it's not that bad. Military rule is better than sometimes than democracy, but by and large, it has not changed their opinion. Uh, yeah, uh, in the middle, right here. Hi, uh, Brian Bo with USAID. Um, uh, you mentioned at the outset uh, FATA, uh, and I'm curious. Seems like in the past, um, since last fall, there's been some new momentum on FATA reforms, and I'm wondering if you feel that there's been any evolution in the military's approach to FATA reforms, and what do you think that it's really going to take to uh, move that process forward? Now, if somebody else has a question that is also about FATA, raise your hand right now so we can we we, we can uh, uh, have those questions together. Okay, that'll make it a little more topical because sometimes people end up asking the same question in different words. So we'll save time that way. So nobody else is thinking about FATA? Great. Go ahead. FATA is the federally administered tribal areas for the uninitiated here. Yeah. I know that there have been reforms in the FCR, which is the Frontier Crime Regulation, where some kind of uh, collective punishment has been done away with. But the reforms have not been far enough. The key reform that FATA needs, and the people of FATA need, is that if their rights are violated, they can go to court. They cannot. They cannot go to any high court and say, I have been arrested illegally. So you can play around with FCR, which is what we are doing. It is not going to bring that kind of change. The other thing that I caution and especially because from, you're from USAID, is that when you put your hand in FATA, be very careful. The old system of FATA has died. The Maliks and all that has gone. Now, uh, there is an eruption of self-appointed Maliks and people there who are running the show, so to speak. And many of them are patronized by one side or the other. If you take away the FCR completely, and you leave that place with no law, then they will use traditional law, which is quite oppressive. So first, the reforms that are already there in the law of FCR. Second step has to be extension of jurisdiction, so that people get a taste of going to court and how they can get some kind of relief there. And, of course, there is a political decision to be taken, and it can be postponed for too long. Whether FATA is going to be a province or not, or whether FATA is going to be part of Pakhtunkhwa province or not. So I think that these are essential elements. And you said the military, the military doesn't want to lose FATA. Because where is the military sitting? They have absolute control in FATA. You know, I used to hear 
the autonomous body, the autonomous geographical region of Pakistan called FATA, CNN. It was the most repressed region of Pakistan, as you all have recognized and learned now. It's poor things is hardly autonomous about it. And there is a stigmatization on the people of FATA after September 11th. Now, I know many people who live in FATA who are not terrorists. But they are in a situation where there is military and there is terrorism, and they don't know whether the terrorist is a military friend or not a military friend. Today they are friends, tomorrow they are not friends. They come and hide in their houses, they use their kettle, whatever. So I think that it is extremely important to uh, get the people of Fatah not only their rights, but also to persuade the military to let civil society into Fatah. I am a Pakistani, but I cannot go to certain parts of Fatah at all. Nobody can go and do development work in Fatah. Only they will do it. Same with Gilgit and Baltistan. I mean, they have full control there. Same with Balochistan, full control. Karachi, full control. Azad Kashmir, full control. So what is left with the civilians? Punjab. Um, question there. Right there. Thank you. Um, my name is Catherine Porter, and I'm with the Leadership Council for Human Rights. And I want to thank you both for this excellent presentation. It's much easier to breathe where truth is being spoken. And I spend a lot of time on the Hill. And that's what I want to talk to you about. You've talked about political um, manipulation. And I see that on the Hill. I see the role of certain uh, Pakistani lobbyists um, manipulating the Congress. In the last year and a half, I've tried to schedule. I have had four hearings scheduled to talk about the human rights in Pakistan, and they are constantly called off. What can we do to change the situation on the Hill so that truth is spoken up there about what is happening to the Baluch and the Sindh and others in Pakistan? Let me put it this way. You want me to be brutally honest with you? Well, that's what you normally are, so why not stay, why not stay with what you... you I think what best. you can do for us is to improve your own human rights standards here. And I say that not as a retort that you Americans are doing. Really not. Truly not. I am a great admirer of the way you taught and you cherished freedom. That is why I am saying it. That when a country like US has something like the Patriot Law, we are told back there, oh, what are you talking about? Where do you think you're coming from? Are you even more mature in a democracy than even US? You want more freedom than that? What are you talking about? How did disappearances come to my country? The first set of disappearances were after September 11th, when Musharraf encouraged that people be give, handed over to the CIA. So the ISI learns very quickly and very fast. They are very sharp people. 
And they thought, if we can do this job for the greatest democracy of the world, we can help ourselves as well. Phase was picking up people in Balochistan. I am not saying this because I am criticizing you, because we seriously need not just Pakistan, and I urge you, not just Pakistan, what we need is better global governance and global leadership. It is not, it doesn't exist. There is no global vision. No, nobody looks up to leaderships anymore. That is very important for me, number one. Secondly, I also appreciate the fact, and I said this to Mr. Hussain Haqqani yesterday, that I think I'm a little bit safe, and I use the word little bit. One, because I'm a lawyer and my community is very vocal, and since I am now over 60, they look upon me as mother hen. So they don't want anything to happen to mother hen. And they get very emotional about it. And I said, secondly, somehow ISI thinks that I'm a CIA agent. So I'm a little bit safe. And his advice to me was that don't deny it. <laughs> and well, uh... and I, I agree. But what I'm saying to you is that, that why I'm saying this to you is what you do here does have an impact there. But do it with delicate hands. And I see that sometimes, not only you, us, everybody, when we're talking about human rights, we are not using the same delicate hands that we used to. For example, yes, have a session on religious minorities, but also recognize the fact that some positive change has also come. It has come. On, on, on the subject of the agent business, uh, you're lucky to be the CIA agent. Those of us who come from the smaller provinces of Pakistan, unfortunately, we all end up being called raw agents. Now, that's a much, no, much, no, that, much harder I, that one. That I'm confirmed one. That's, that's a much harder one for us to handle. And, and, and that always makes me wonder why is it that those who are from the Punjab don't get recruited by raw. <laughs> and those of us who are from the smaller provinces all end up getting recruited by raw. I somehow want to talk to the recruitment officers, both at the ISI and the raw, to figure this little dilemma out. Um, right here in the middle. Then I'm going to move to the right side of the audience, because I have taken a lot of questions from this side. And now what we are doing is two or three questions together, yeah, and then, Aparna, so. uh, then uh, Asma can start answering those together. And, Salam, Momina Ijazdeen. I work at the World Bank. I've been a long admirer of the work that you've been doing. And if you could elaborate a little bit on the concept of religious freedom. Pakistan is not an easy place, uh, increasingly, for minorities, whether you're Hindu, um, Christian, or even increasingly within the Muslim community, Shia or Ahmadi. Uh, and Ahmadis aren't even regarded as Muslims. So if you could just comment a little bit, because especially on the legal aspects, because a lot of these are now enshrined in the legislature, mm. which is quite unusual compared to other countries, and the work that you're doing in that space. Uh, right. Similar question from, yeah. So let's have that together, and then 
you have we, we've been very patient. I'll come to you in a second. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Tazeen Ahmad, and I work with Capitol Hill Consulting here, but I'm also a member of the Amdia Muslim community. And just to follow up on that question, you talked about the law that's now against with on the books about the MQM leader. Well, the law, uh, um, eight months, but the, the law declaring Ahmadis non-Muslims was in 1974. The Ordinance 20 that actually will tell, would, does not allow an Ahmadi Muslim to say Assalamu alaikum or, you know, even the smallest things can you know that people anyone can say you know if that's Islamic they're not allowed to do that and on official documents they have to declare that you know they have to either check that they do not be they believe that the, their leader or their you know the founder right. of the community is an imposter or you know they have to check that or, or the, uh, if they don't check that they can't write that they're Muslim so I just want to talk and they are completely disenfranchised under the uh, under yeah. the electoral laws because unless they acknowledge themselves as non-Muslims they can't vote as non-Muslims and since they are not Muslims they can't vote as Muslims so that's another important yeah. uh, discrimination against the Ahmadi community in Pakistan and, and we believe that we are Muslim so I just want to follow up on you said something right. about some improvements I'd love to hear more and what is it that's going to that we can do sitting here that may have Thanks, give a yeah. voice to some of the people, right. have people talk about is it. Is there another question that is similar to the right here? Yeah. Hi. I'm recognizing people in the order that I first saw them raise their hands, so please uh, be patient with me. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Madam, thank you. Uh, I'm with the Hindu American Foundation. We we publish an annual human rights report, and we specifically highlight the thousand women who are abducted and forcibly converted from the Hindu and Christian communities in Pakistan. On this note, I wanted to ask about the Hindu marriage bill that has been, uh, I think, ratified in the Sindh Assembly and perhaps ratified at the national level. Is there is what are the possible circumventions that you anticipate? Um, you know rogue actors in society uh, doing in order to circumvent this law. Um, Thank you. Which... And do you have a question on religious freedom as well? Yeah, okay. Right at the back. My name is and I'm a Shia Muslim. I definitely want to know about what's going on with the minorities. Thank you. Good to see you, Kamran. I couldn't recognize you from this far. Okay, so we have questions on Ahmadis, we have questions on Hindus, we have I questions on Shias. Here. I think we need a question right here as well. Right, let's complete the... Thank you very much. Asma, you are one of my heroes. I'm Nina Shea, Director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the uh, Hudson Institute. And um, I followed your work, had written about it on, in the UN. Um, I'm asking about a Christian case. Uh, the, uh, I would like you to comment on the Asia Bibi case. Um, she's in, uh, I guess, a state of uh, final appeal now before the Supreme Court, her case, after seven long years. Thank you. So that completes all of the... Oh, do you have one? Okay, is there a community we missed out, right? From the minority party community. Ah, absolutely. I was just thinking that that's the only one left, yeah. My uh, only question is that we keep hearing that the population is reducing yes. and that people are leaving Karachi and also heard last week that some of the houses in the Parsi colony have been occupied by the rangers. Yes. So the concern yes, is that what happens to the properties if people leave and how, how can those be safeguarded? Okay. You have the whole gamut of the religious 
Yeah, there's one more on the oh, One more. Go on. Hello, I'm Ali Jupran and I'm a house husband. So I have a very brief question that as a lawyer who has been associated with uh, human rights for a long time, there's this guy, Junaid Hafiz, who is in uh, yes. blasphemy. Do you think as a person, as you, in your opinion, do you think that he will ever see the light of day again? Because he's in jail for quite a while now. So now we have questions on uh, Ahmadis, Hindus, uh, Shias, Christians. And this one would, I would say, for non-believers or semi-believers or questioners or atheists altogether, right? Good. Well, let me just start with the, my comment saying to say that some positive signs have been there. And when I say some positive, I don't mean that the, the problem of religious freedom has been taken care of in Pakistan. But let me give you examples of what I find little seeds of positivism. For example, there was a judgment of the Supreme Court for the first time addressing the MD issue. Because the Supreme Court, in one of the cases many years ago, had given a judgment on the MD issue, which I find that if when I look at that judgment, it is revolting in terms of human rights. It is a revolting judgment, which says that a Muslim has copyright over certain things and no one can copy it, and therefore uh, uh, the Ordinance 20, of which my friend talked about here, is legitimate law. This is one. Secondly, I hear more and more voices on the media concerned about religious minorities and talking about it. This is the positiveness that I talked about. And the Punjab government, which is one of the worst conservative governments, also talking about religious minorities, the prime minister wishing the Christians Happy Christmas and Diwali. Now, these are symbols, but they're important. They're, they're important, not deep enough, but at least something, somewhere, people are beginning to realize that we need to address it. However, I think that the worst are the amenities in Pakistan, not only in Pakistan, but you see in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, the Amdis are being persecuted. But why I say that it's the worst kind of persecution in Pakistan is that the persecution is by the state. And there is a law which by name says that he cannot do this or cannot do that. And there are thousands of cases against them. It's not one or two, but thousands. So constantly, uh, they are in and out of courts. But what I find even worse is the kind of discrimination that Amdi children have to face in schools and colleges, and at times even violence because of their religion. Anyone who speaks to defend them is also painted as a heretic and becomes a person, they say Amdi's were the worst and most horrifying is that they are wajibul qatl, mean that you can kill them, and that would be not a sin. So anyone who supports them also becomes wajibul qatl. 
As far as the Hindus are concerned, I would put them in the second worst category. Because when there are tensions with India, a large number of Hindu young men get picked up. And what has happened in the Hindu community, and my friend is here, I want to explain to you, is that a lot of young men have left the community. But the women stay there, the girls. At night, many of them cross the border, get married on the other side. Now, the conversion question is a very tricky one, in the sense that there is no doubt that there have been forced conversions, which anybody would denounce and must denounce. And people have stood up with the Hindu community on this. But there are also conversions where a woman has done it on her own will to marry somebody who is a Muslim. And so when the community says that we should denounce that, I cannot denounce it as a human rights person. Because it is a woman's right to get married. And it is a person's right to convert. She may be doing the wrong thing. She may be exploited in doing the wrong thing. But if she's an adult and she's made up her mind that she wants to marry this Muslim and she wants to convert, there's not much that we can do except to say that there are gangs that are exploiting young Hindu women. And that the whole system in their, 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 uh, 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 of migration of young men has somehow created a problem for the young women who are sitting there. So there are two types. Surely there is that awful, most horrendous forced conversion, which takes place in Sindh because most Hindus are there. And people are doing it as a, as a routine. There are this Mithumia who does it all the time. So there are, there are these gangs who are doing it. Then when you talk about the Christians, now if you look at the blasphemy figures, more Muslims are accused of blasphemy than anybody else. And that takes me to your question about Javed, uh, Junaid Hafiz. Also Asya Bibi. I'll come to that last. Junaid Hafiz. You know that his lawyer got killed. It's very difficult to get a lawyer in Multan. They will kill. So they have now tried to transfer the case. It's not going to be easy for me to say, oh, well, he'll get bail. No, it will be difficult. But there have been other low-key cases, at least three or four that I've done last year, where people did get bail, but again from the Supreme Court. Parsis, well, you're absolutely right that this has happened. I was shocked myself when I went to Karachi a few months ago and I was told that all these lovely little flats of Parsis where they've left them, the Rangers has occupied them. But the Parsi community is an empowered community. Uh, so what we said was, well, we had a meeting and there was a meeting of what, for example, the Human Rights Commission can do. Apart from a statement, there was not much we can do. Unless a Parsi will come forward and say, okay, I want to go to court, please take me to court. And that has not happened. It's a rich community. It's a, a community that is, many of the Parsis have left because the atmosphere in Pakistan has changed. Well, it's not the same. Ten, nine out of 10 huh? years before my birth, 
in Karachi were uh, non-Muslim. Yes. The mayors of Karachi. The religious minorities have shrunk in Pakistan. Lahore, my city, is not the same city. When I was a child, I had a Parsi in the school, I had Hindus in school, I had Christians in school. Uh, we used to go to their religious festivals. They used to come to our house for religious festivals. My children don't even know what a Parsi religious festival is. When I show them those little things on the floor, and they say, what is this? And I said, that's a Parsi thing. Now, really? They don't know that. Plus, we have isolated ourselves. Pakistan. People go across the border, they imbibe other cultures. Where are we to go? Afghanistan? No. Iran? No. India? No. So where do we go? So that by itself is very deliberating for our society. Asya Bibi. Her case is in the Supreme Court. Leave to appeal has been granted. I think the Supreme Court is not going to take that case soon enough. This is my view, and this is only my assessment. They have already done the Kadri case just last year, and they will take a while before Asya's case comes up in the Supreme Court. They can be brave only once in a while. Once in a while. But let me also say, and this I'm saying with grief, that Asya Bibi's case was really mucked up by lawyers. And I am not saying that this is the judgment also of the High Court. There are several Christian NGOs now who don't have a trial lawyer, but they hire fresh lawyers and tell them to experiment with blasphemy cases. They have done amazing amount of damage for people. Amazing damage to people. And once they wreck the case, then they bring it to other lawyers saying, now we've done this, now what do we do? It was so apparently embarrassing in the high court that there were five or six lawyers, all Christians, and nobody had a file during her appeal. And the court wrote that this is the worst done case. Now when you go to the Supreme Court, which is the appellate court, they will only go on the kind of evidence that has been there on the trial. I don't know what they're going to do, because if I read that case, it's a very difficult one of acquittal. I do not agree with the law, but the courts have to apply the law. So I think that there is something to be said here, that when you, in your kindness, want to help people, please ask them that what are you, who are the lawyers that you're giving this case to, what is their standing, two years, three years? Have they ever done a trial before? Don't they play? You can't play with the lives of other people. By, by, by not uh, pleading their case as well. Look, we are running out of time. This is fascinating. This is wonderful. But there are two people whom I recognized earlier, and Trina, uh, because I did see your hand earlier as well, Harvey. So all three of you ask your questions. Uh, and Asma will try and be brief, and then we'll come to an end. So right there, Mr. Anwar Iqbal. Then the gentleman here, and then Mr. Schaefer here. Sorry, well, I kind of have to I work for Pakistan Dawn newspaper, and I hope I, I would be able to write most of the things that you said here. Uh, but some of us may not be able to report that. 
So I'm asking a political question so that they, they also have something to write about, uh, which is that how do you see, and this is something that I discuss at every gathering that Pakistanis have here, how do you see the prison political dispute going? Do you think that the current uh, political setup in Pakistan will survive or collapse? Okay. Question right there. Thank you. Um, this is Jahaz Ewali. I'm a chief correspondent here for ARY News TV. Uh, oh, uh, thank you very much to be here, Ms. Asma. You talk about the accountability, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, corruption is a big problem in Pakistan. But in your opinion, who will do that accountability? I mean, the institution formed to do that were, were not allowed to do that. I mean, we talk about the NAB, FIA, or whatever. I mean, the recent example is that Panama Papers, whatever, they cannot investigate Prime Minister. I mean, who will do that accountability? Okay, thank you. Good. And Ambassador Schaefer. Thank you. Uh, as the chairman has pointed out, I'm Ambassador Howard Schaefer. I teach at Georgetown University, and I've been a uh, U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Pakistan. So this picks up on a, a couple of other points made earlier. As you know, uh, the U.S. government produces every year a human rights report on every country, and also a report uh, on uh, religious liberty. A couple of questions on that. First, uh, does anyone pay any attention to these reports in Pakistan? And secondly, of those who do, uh, how accurate do they appear? Okay. Let's have the last question from Iman because she did raise her hand earlier. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for all the great work you do. I'm Iman Malik, a consultant on limited war and law intensity conflicts, counterterrorism, and counterinsurgency operations. My question is pertinent to Balochistan. There's been, again, a momentum and activism on the Hill, and uh, especially extrajudicial killings, uh, kill and dump operations. How do you see going forward as far as the Balochistan conflict is concerned, particularly once the province is situated under the uh, geostrategic uh, umbrella? Thank you. Okay. The well, final first, four questions. Well, first, Balochistan. You see, now we are in about Balochistan. We are in a state of self-denial. We feel that we have subdued the insurgency. Now we had a nationalist government. The new chief minister talks about Baloch nationalists in very derogatory terms because he feels he's overcome. The chief minister does not move without the core commander there. But the insurgency is there. And in my view, it will become worse. Why? Because we have this CPAC where Gwadar is going to become a port. And already, the fishermen are out of job. And if the indigenous livelihood is being taken away, but they are not being given jobs as a compensation of that. Now, whether it is even exaggerated or not, but it has spread like wildfire, that oh, foreigners are going to come, and our jobs are going to be gone, and they're going to bring in their own people. Plus, the Baloch want to have a right to their own natural resources, whether our government likes it or doesn't like it. And this is something that we are not accepting, that 
Baloch nationalism is in every heart and mind there. We are trying to change their, their, uh, their uh, constitution of their ethnic groups by bringing, saying, well, there are more Pakhtuns there and whatever. That is not going to help. That's going to even complicate situations. There, has, there were never sectarian violence in Balochistan earlier. It was religiously a more tolerant province than anybody else. But suddenly, lashkar e taiba has settled there. Who brought them there? Who settled them there? We don't know. But these are, again, the same kind of games that are being played, which have never resolved problems. It only makes them worse. In my view, I think first we have to recognize that there is a problem in Balochistan. We have to recognize the fact that we cannot control Balochistan's natural resources from Islamabad, rather from Pindi, I would say. So, and we have to talk to not just the leadership of Bram Dagh and uh, Herbert, but also to those nationalists who are in the country. There is no discussion. I go to many times to colleges in uh, Balochistan. Every girl is a nationalist whether they like it or they don't like it. Every child is a nationalist. And we have to address it. Unless we don't do that, things are going to get worse. We don't even hear of the number of people that are killed in the so-called operations. But we hear from our activists there that, oh, in the Avran region, the whole village has been destroyed. No news in the ARY doesn't report about it. So. I think that they're out of even news. Now, about the human rights reports, Ambassador. Uh, for Pakistani society, your reports are not news. They know it. But where they want to, where you want it heard, I think they do pay attention to it. Because there are many reports that come in the media and also in many other organizations' reports where all these figures and everything is given. So, yes, it does appear in the newspaper, but it's not the talk of the town. But there is a worry that these reports do generate amongst the establishment in Pakistan who want to have very good relations with you and they think that you feel for human rights, or they think that you will use human rights to uh, cut them off from several privileges. So that is their worry, and I think it helps. Accountability. You know, in every country, people have accountability. It's done by the institutions, done by their courts. That's why I said that if you have independent courts, you will have accountability. We have an FBR. What is the FBR doing? And I am glad that you bring up NAB, National Accountability Bureau. I have never seen a law like the NAB law. For example, if I rob a bank, I can make a pre-bargain uh, and return some of the money and be out and sit pretty at home. And then there's voluntary return and so on and so forth. So it's a rich robber's law. If I sort of pickpocket, I'll have to go to jail. 
So in any case, I think we need to take accountability seriously. Accountability cannot be politicized. It really must be taken seriously. Uh, and that is one of the major reasons why we cannot put governance together. Then somebody told, talked about dispute. Current political situation. Ah, yes, yes, Anwar Iqbal, Anwar Iqbal sahab. Anwar Iqbal sahab, you never predict about Pakistan. Anyone who predicts about Pakistan will burn their fingers. As far as the current situation is concerned, the army is calling the shots. They simply don't want to see Mr. Nawaz Sharif. So if Mr. Nawaz Sharif will not be there, Mr. Shabaz Sharif will be there. And then after a few months, they won't like Mr. Shabaz Sharif. And then somebody else, Mr. Iqbal Hassan, will be there. So this game will continue to be played. But I do believe, this is my belief, that when people talk about something has to give way, I think this time the army will have to understand that this system cannot be derailed every few years. That instability in Pakistan is something that people are not prepared for anymore. We've had it for too long. And regardless of the mistakes of the PMLN and Mr. Nawaz Sharif, there is a, a breathing space that people have got. Economically, things are more stable. Load shedding is better. I'm not saying it's gone. People are beginning to see that there may be a future in that country. And the government, the civilian government itself, this time round, the first time, the PMLN civilian government itself, has not been vindictive with people. So I think that we are maturing in some respect, and I hope that our friends and our brothers in uniform will allow us to mature. If they do not, I'm afraid that this time the dictator will be most unwelcome from day one. There will be no liberal Musharraf has come, and so let's give him a chance. Because, you know, we have a wonderful army chief who is, we are told, loved by everybody, and I'm sure he is. And we also know that we have a dearth of political leadership. So I do absolutely hope that he does retire this year and come to political arena where we have a dearth of leadership. And since we all know from the posters all over Pakistan that he is such a loved man and people don't want him to go, he doesn't have to go. He simply has to change course from military leadership he should come, take the vote of those people who are dying to give him the votes and love him so much. And then we'll have a wonderful political leader and a wonderful, I'm sure, military leader. And then Pakistan shall live happy ever after. From your lips to God's ears, thank you very much, Asma Jahangir. <laughs>